Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft, career and what matters to them. Shauna Jensen is an Australian singer. She's been a member of multiple bands including Purple Vision and Flake. And she was a cast member of Australia's original production of Jesus Christ Superstar, appearing on the original Australian cast recording. For most of the 80s, Shauna was one of the most in-demand jingle singers, a career which introduced her to the world of background singing on film, television, radio and in the rock music world for the next two decades. The new millennium brought with it exciting new projects for Shauna. These included singing background vocals for Carry the Flame by John Stevens, the official song for the Sydney 2000 Olympics, Torch Relay and a collaboration with legendary Sydney DJ Paul Goodyear, their first single, an uplifting house rework of the Sylvester classic, Take Me to Heaven. This year, she celebrates 50 years in the business. It is indeed a joy to welcome Shauna Jensen to Stages. Shauna Jensen, hello. Hello. You're a golden girl. I am. Congratulations, celebrating uh, 50 years in the business this year. 50 years. Wasn't quite, didn't quite turn out how I expected it to, but, you know, it's been good nonetheless. Well, it's a year to remember. Well, that's for sure. Does it feel like 50 years? Sometimes. Five decades. Yeah. Sometimes it feels like, uh, look, most of the time I think that I, I feel like I'm I'm just always learning. Excuse, Excuse me. me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, to the listeners, sorry, that sounds like it's a drill next yeah. door. So um, if you're hearing bizarre noises, it's, it's not That's me funny. or Shauna. Mm. Uh, no, look, I feel like 50 years, uh, you know, you learn a lot in 50 years, but I'm still learning. So I, 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 I don't know, you know, I can't say that it feels like 50 years. Sometimes I look at myself in the mirror, though, and I go, huh? Oh, okay, right. A bit older, a few more wrinkles, you know, but I've had such a great career so far. Mm. You know, still going, still pushing on. And uh, across a a diverse array of platforms, too, which we'll we'll talk about through this conversation. Mm. Um, And great to see that uh, also you're you're up there performing as we speak. I mean, you had a show last night at Claire's Kitchen Le Salon and a second one tonight. Correct. Uh, you still get that buzz from oh, getting up in front of an audience? Absolutely. I love it. Absolutely. have to take, you know, my rescue remedy and um, do my little mantras before I go on about being excited rather than nervous, which is what I would always teach my students. Well, it's a psychological game, isn't it, preparing it totally to is. face an audience? It totally is. Yeah. And especially when you're doing cabaret. I... I with my shows, with my cabaret shows, I tend not to script them. I'm not a very... I don't feel confident as a writer, but I know that I'm really funny on stage and off the cuff. I can, I've, just, I've just very quick-witted and, and I'm very fortunate that way. And um, I'm more concerned these days with remembering lyrics. Right. Than I ever was when I was younger. And that would probably be the difference between being is, 30. Is that learning new material or is this songs that you've sung for, for many years? No, not so much with songs that I've sung for many years, but new material and songs that I don't sing that often. You know, like particularly last night, for instance, I was doing, uh, I do in my Christmas show, I do The River by Joni Mitchell. And I sang, I got to the second verse, which is kind of in two parts. And I sang, sang the second part, first and realized that I'd done that as the the words were coming out of my mouth and went straight into the chorus and poor Miss Bev just kind of looked at me and I just said okay no 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 stop 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 I stopped and I started the song again and I I don't feel bad about doing that because I think audiences enjoy it too I, you know if my, I had a few friends there last night and they said that there were people that I actually had a friend who was with a few people and we talked about that and they said that they loved being seeing that vulnerability, that they loved that it wasn't going to see a big stage production which is 
whiz bang, everything's, runs like clockwork, yeah. you know, runs like clockwork because my shows certainly don't run like that. And, you know, sometimes I, I'll be doing something and I find it so funny that I can't continue singing and I just keep laughing. Yeah. And the audience enjoys that. Absolutely. And and people enjoyed it. They do enjoy seeing your vulnerability because it makes them aware of their own. Happening in real time. Correct. And I guess your confidence also is contributed to by contributed to by uh, the rapport that you've got with your accompanist. Yes. Um, you build Absolutely. That's quite a special relationship, isn't it? Absolutely. It really is. And I work with um, I work with Bev Kennedy a lot, and she's fantastic i also work with andrew warboys and i also work with jeremy brennan and another guy called um anton karitney and i have a different relationship with each of them and each of them have played various shows or played the same shows and they're always completely different wow you know so because they're different stylists they they play differently they might be the same songs but they play it's a different style so I have to adapt to that player and I guess they have an expectation of themselves and I always just say look it is what it is if you make a mistake just stop don't worry about it you know Mm. and um yeah and I you know and sometimes you have to say with to the accompanist yes you can play that style don't doubt yourself it's fine it sounds fabulous or they might not feel comfortable playing a particular genre because I do lots of different kind of... I, I'm not so music theatre. In fact, I'm not at all music theatre. Um, and, in fact, many years ago, Peter, there was an article in the Star Observer or the Capital Q magazine or something, and they called me a cabaret artist. And I remember thinking at the time, being quite indignant about it because I'm not a cabaret artist because to me as I grew up when I was a much younger performer a cabaret artist was considered to be somebody who went to RSL clubs and did those RSL club shows which unless you know what I'm talking about you wouldn't know but I know you know what I'm talking about yeah yeah the club scene was huge the club scene was huge and it was all very yeah and it was and I found that to be quite mm, uh, unrealistic I found it to be that's why I didn't really like music theatre and so I was kind of like oh I'm not a cabaret artist but now I'm a cabaret artist Mm -hmm. but cabaret has evolved so much in the last you know five years maybe particularly and there's a whole queer uh, queer kind of angle to cabaret like a burlesque cabaret and I went to one of those cabaret nights recently and I was just like, where's the singer? I just want to see somebody sing. I don't want to see someone with their tits out. Yeah. Every woman with her tits out. Yeah. I don't want to see that. Yeah. I want to see somebody come on and sing or somebody come on and do some interpretive dance or something. Tell a story. Tell a story. Yeah. And so I think that that's, that's another genre of cabaret that's become very popular and you know, and then you have cabaret that all that cabaret that that is being put on around Sydney and and in all, all around Australia, I guess, with people of my ilk, I love it. I want to, I want to go and see people like Geraldine Turner and and Trevor Ashley and and, and everybody. I want to go and see everybody. Yeah, and it's fantastic that um, you know Mark Kuzma at Claire's Kitchen has been able to keep that cabaret thing happening for the last few months that's just been brilliant life is a cabaret old chum chum. (laughs) come Come to to the the cabaret cabaret. (laughs) absolutely well you've had time in music theatre you've had time in cabaret Mm. you've been a backup vocalist you've been Mm. a frontline vocalist Mm -hmm. Um, how do you define yourself I just define myself as a singer a gun for hire (laughs) (laughs) yes I am um yeah, you know, how, how do you define yourself? Um, yeah, I, don't, I just, I'm a singer. That's what I do. Mm-hmm. I, that's what I do. And a performer. I'm a slashy singer slash performer, performer. slash entertainer slash actor. Telling this wonderful stories through song. Telling stories. And, you know, I don't consider myself to be 
a songwriter. Every time I tried to write songs, I've always looked at my lyrics and I want them to be like a sting song, but they all they're all a bit Moon June Spoon Croon to me. Right. And in fact, I I just this 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 last couple of weeks wrote a parody of of Santa Baby. And I had asked for help, but the people that I that I had asked for help luckily were working and were unable to help me. And so I put pen to paper and I was like, oh, I don't know if this is any good. And I, I really didn't feel confident about it. And I, But I did it at rehearsal yesterday and Bev and Mark said, no, it's good, go for it. And I did it and it was so funny oh, great. and so successful. And I was great. like, oh, actually, maybe I'm not maybe I should be a little bit more confident. So that's what I mean about learning. You know, mm. you, you we're constantly challenging ourselves and learning. And I think that's why I've had a career that's lasted as long as it has is because I do lots of different things. Mm. I've done so many things. Mm. And all those things have made me the performer that I am now. And given you some longevity. Yeah. 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 Although, I have to say, Peter, I do feel invisible. Right. I feel invisible. And somebody recently said to me, I was bemoaning the fact that I wasn't getting asked to do backing vocals for tours anymore in the rock business. And I couldn't understand, I can't understand why. I, I, I really don't understand it. The voice is still the same and can contribute. The voice is just, just as, you as always good, yeah. can, you know, a no, lot of knowledge. And um, I, this, this guy said to me, he's a friend of mine, he's, I've known him for many years, and he said to me, well, it's because you're old and fat and nobody wants to see that. And I was like, what? And he goes, you know, people want to see the hot young chick in the miniskirt. And, and I was like, Even yeah. if they can't sing. You, you know, whatever. There are a lot of beautiful young women, younger women out there who sing great. But I think when there's somebody like me and other singers around who are available and we're overlooked because of our age, mm. I find that really sad. Yeah. Because I could, especially when I look at a lot of the, the bands have the older musicians in them but they don't have the older women. Yeah. And I find that quite quite disturbing, sexist, ageist. But it is it is what it is. And um, I'm very grateful for all the experiences that I've had doing all that work. But, um, yeah, I, I do feel... I do feel invisible and I even feel invisible in the cabaret circuit because I don't do, because a lot of the cabaret circuit in Sydney revolves around music theatre. Because I'm not in music theatre, I'm never asked to do, or very rarely asked to do a cabaret night at the Hayes or a cabaret night somewhere else or a cabaret, you know, wherever they're having a cabaret thing. Uh, Even though I've done many, 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 many sellout shows it's like hello i'm over here invisible but that's okay i create my own work and i you know i don't feel resentful about being invisible i just feel sometimes i just feel invisible and i can't tell you the number of times that i've actually sat down on facebook and written a, a page of what it is that I've done and then gone, and why isn't anybody hiring me? And then I've just gone, no, no, delete. Discard that post. Can't post that because you can't because, mm. you know, people just take it the wrong way and I'm not I'm not resentful in any way. I, I, you know, things have happened to me. I've been so fortunate in the the, the jobs that I have had in all the various genres of, of, of entertainment that I've done. Like when I did music theatre, when I did Jesus Christ Superstar and Two Gentlemen of Verona and Betty Blockbuster um, and Let My People Come But We Don't Talk About That. Um, <laughs> what those things, what those uh, experiences did for me was taught me how to sing with other people taught me how to work a stage 
because I got to work with incredible people like Jim Sharman and Keith Bain and Brian Thompson, Brian Thompson, Reg and, or Reg, and you know, I I've, I learned so much. I toured with um, with Gary McDonald to doing Norman Gunston, and I, you know, I got to I I learned so much from those people, and when I was doing Jesus Christ Superstar, Harry and Miller would. We'd get called down to stage after a show and they'd say, Harry wants to address you. And Harry would come out and he'd say, ah, I suppose you thought that was really good. And everybody would he'd say, it's the worst fucking show I've ever seen. And, and he would, even though it wasn't, it was just him making us keep a level of performance. And and I, I, I loved doing doing Superstar. It was really good. I did it in Australia and I did it in New Zealand. And, and Two Gentlemen of Verona was good and Betty Blockbuster was great. You know, they were fantastic shows to do. But I, I don't... I think the thing that I liked about those was that they were more modern music. They were rock operas, I suppose, Rock operas, yeah yeah, 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 exactly. And we had quite a bit of freedom. And I think... I don't know that I could uh, the discipline of the of doing the same thing night after night after night after night really isn't does not my jam yeah. just not my jam at all I'm really I'm more of a free spirit yes it does require a specific discipline doesn't it to uh, turn up eight shows a week yeah. and, and deliver yeah. a, a copycat performance of the it, night before indeed it does yeah. and and I applaud people who can do that and um, especially some of those shows that are hard sings like Wicked and but you know I went to see Wicked and I loved it mm-hmm. I loved Wicked I thought it was brilliant when yeah. it first started I thought oh my god I'm going to hate this but I loved it yeah. and um, you know I loved Priscilla and I loved Muriel's Wedding I thought it was so good um, and but sometimes I look at those shows and I go oh yeah I could do that if there was a role for me I did audition for Priscilla. I nearly got that role. Um, and I think, yeah, I could do that. And then I think, oh, but would I like it? Mm. I'd like the paycheck. Yeah, yeah. You know, but I don't know. And I'd love the camaraderie of being with a big company, the, the comp- a big mm. company mm. because you do form a great bond. I, the bonds that I formed with people in Superstar, I still have today. Well, tell me about Superstar because that was 1972, I think. And it was, was it one of your first gigs? No, no, no. Oh, well, yes, I suppose it was. It was the first theatre show that I'd done. Right. And I had been in bands up until right. that point. So how did you hear about Superstar? Did, did, was it a general casting call? No, I was working, uh, working, I was living in a share house in uh, Harris Street in Ultimo and I was sharing with a trombone player. And he was friends with the musical director of Jesus Christ Superstar, Michael Carlos. And Michael Carlos said, I'm putting the band together and I'm going to take them to the pub, uh, was the, in Coogee, I can't remember, the Oceanic Hotel, it's not there anymore. And we're going to do a residency so that when we go into the, take the band in, the band is just cooking. Do you want to come and be the singer? John English is going to be the other singer. I was like, sure, fantastic. So I went and did that, and they had then had started rehearsing the superstar and everything. And Michael said to me, "You need to be in the show now." And I think because I had done that, I went and auditioned when they had the first open call, and got in, and did that show. But I found the whole audition process quite demoralizing and I didn't care for that at all and I, I was I felt very unconfident and well, the first time that you would be it was required the first to time I'd ever done anything oh. like that and so but I but that was how and so that was how I got into the show and the majority or a lot of the kids who were in that cast had been in hair and my auntie my mother's best friend you know, and back in the day, always called them auntie. She worked for um, a big promoter and she was like, you should go into hair, you should go and do hair, you should do hair. And I went and saw it and I went, oh, no, I can't take my clothes off. I couldn't do that. But I kind of wish that I had done it. But they're so fantastic and I have friends 
from, you know, from, we, it was a tribe because Hare was what they called themselves a tribe. And so they brought that tribe vibe into Superstar. And it really was a beautiful company to work with. It was just, we spent so much time together. We did lots of things together as groups and little offshoot groups. And we'd go on trips, you know, out of town. And we'd get into lots of trouble when we got back to the theatre late. And, you know, we'd be doing things that we weren't supposed to be doing and smoking things we weren't supposed to be smoking (laughs) in the theatre. But it was fun, you know. It was yeah. a really fun time and we had a great time and and I really enjoyed that and I did the, a New Zealand run of that as well. And, and a, a, a cast recording. Yes. I'm super stoned. I, there was a cast recording. I'm not sure if I did that cast recording, but I did do a cast recording before the company of Jesus Christ Superstar was formed. EMI right. wanted to put out a Jesus Christ Superstar record. And so I got the call to go in and do Mary. Mary Magdalene. Mm. I, I don't know how to love him. Correct. So I got the call to go in and do that. So I did that. That was my first kind of introduction to Superstar, really. And, um, yeah, I've got that vinyl somewhere hanging around. I think everybody's got that vinyl somewhere, which is great. Yeah. It's, it's well, that's the EMI one, not yeah. the oh, original, right. the the one original that was one. Yeah. Oh, well, oh, well that would yeah. be a rarity. Yeah, it was a rarity. It was pretty funny. But from Superstar, it was really from Jesus Christ Superstar and the connections that I made there that I ended up moving into doing a lot of studio work. So they were looking for, for, for new kind of singers and new sound. So define me, what, what is studio work? So doing commercials, right. you know, doing TVCs and... and jingles and... Jingles and... and Film tracks, but it was a lot of jingles. We did a lot of jingles in the eighties, like a mm. lot. Right. And you would you would do sometimes five in a day. Well, this might be a good chance. I want to play something for you. Okay. All right. What the hell is this? Do you remember this? Uh-uh. Do you know who it is? Me? Yes. I recognise it, but I don't know what it is. Nineteen eighty-five. Oh, it's so pretty. It's gorgeous.
so there you go. what about that do you remember that recording no. that? that was um <laughs> Uh, called You're My Friend by Peter Pinney and Don Batty, who were responsible for Neighbours at the time. Right. So you, that was featured in Neighbours. So wow. Um, must, I don't even remember. That was part remember. of your studio recordings. Yeah, well, I did a lot of studio recordings. I did a lot of albums, a lot of backing vocals, and a lot of the time you would go into the studio and there would be people like those guys who would have something rich and they know exactly what they want. And a lot of time you'd go in to do backing vocals for an album or something and they would, the producer would say, we'd like you to put some backing vocals on. I go, what would you like? And they go, I don't know, what do you think? And that was became a bit of a joke about how many record producers does it take to change a light bulb? Oh. I don't know, what do you think? And it was, um, it was often up to us as the singing group who came in, that you know, might have been two or three or four of us, to arrange it and put it on the on the record and record it. And you never got any extra money, you just got a session fee. Hmm. Um, but I really, I learned a lot about studio because I worked a lot and I was very fast. I was very, very fast in the studio. And obviously very competent musicians. A musician you were, reading music and Well, I don't read music. You don't read music, right? I don't read music and I would always say to people when they would ring up to book me, I don't read music so you're going to have to teach it to me when I get there. And they've got sure no problem. And there were a lot of us in... We, we came behind a group of singers who... Uh, Kerry Bedell, um, there was another group of singers who all read... They were all chart singers. They could read, you know, they could read dog droppings on a piece of paper and make a song out of it. You know, they could read really well. And Carrie Bedell would say, you know, that E flat that you're singing is sharp. And you'd be like, what, what E flat? I have no idea. So I, I didn't read music, but I was very quick. And I have a very quick ear. So I could pick things up quite quickly. And um, so consequently, because there was myself... Uh, Maggie McKinney, um, uh, Mark Williams, the three of us did a lot of work. We did a lot of commercial, well, yeah, a lot of commercials, Adrian Payne as well. And we would go in and we would work for, because in the 80s what would happen was they would bring the TVCs, the television commercials, would the visuals would come in from America. So if there was a new Coke ad, for instance, they would bring the visual in from America and the way they got around using it in Australia was they would record the audio here. Right. And I remember Kerry Bedell vehemently trying to get everybody to get on board to get residuals and to, to make a stand. And we were all young and stupid. Yeah. And we were like, nah, 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 nah. And, um, you know, I'd own this apartment building now with the amount of... Residuals that, residuals that I coming in, yeah, yeah, and but I learned a lot. I learned a lot about you know being in the studio. I learned a lot about my own ability. I learned a lot about being able to um, knowing what I was capable of doing and being able to uh, communicate that with the engineer. Because often you'd go in and you know you'd learn it and you'd walk into the studio and then they'd go, oh, I'm just getting the sound. I'd be like, no, do it. Press record now. This is it. One take. Let's go. And um, because in those days, of course, there was no cutting and pasting. It was all, you know, studio time was expensive and they wanted you to get in and out. But, you know, you'd go in, there would be different types of recording and different budgets. And I could go and do a Doug Parkinson album uh, over in Glebe, for instance, and we could be there all day. But, you know, we'd get paid that session fee. Or you'd go in and do a job for a, a jingle producer. And I remember starting out a jingle producer who shall remain nameless because I don't want to incriminate myself. And he had was just starting out. And so he asked us, Maggie, myself and Adrian and, and may, maybe Mark, I can't remember, but a whole group of singers to work for a lower amount of money than was what other people what were paying or, yeah. um, so that he could get started and it was like okay you know it was only really a difference of you know 20 or 30 dollars at the time it wasn't you didn't get paid you know a huge amount of money in those days and uh, 
And I, so then he started getting a lot of work and I would get a check from one producer for a check. Seems so old fashioned. You know, you'd get the check in the mail from one producer where you've done exactly the same amount of work that you have for this other producer and the difference would be several hundred dollars. And so I ended up saying to that producer, you have to pay the same, you have to start paying the right amount of money because you're driving a Porsche now and, mm. you know, come on. Mm. And he said to me, if you want that kind of money, I'll use you as often as I use Kerry Bedell, which is never. So that was really, really upsetting because you know, I had started this guy off in the business and he was just greedy. Mm. And so one day I was in doing a, a session at EMI for a, a American ad company for Hershey's Chocolate. And I went in and there was a Studio A and Studio B on the seventh floor at EMI, in the old EMI building. And there was a kitchen area. And I walked in and there were all these singers there and they were doing a job for this producer that I had told to rack off. He told me to rack off. And uh, so I was talking to everybody and he came out of the studio and he saw me and his whole (gasps) demeanour... I could I could hear him thinking, oh, I didn't remember booking her. And I just said to him, hello, blah, blah, still ripping everybody off, are you? Good on you. Yeah. And then I just walked away and I went in to do my Hershey's chocolate ad and, you know, get my $1,000 or whatever it was that I was making at the time. And um, But I did a lot of jingles. A Is lot. it hard to sing about chocolate and sound excited? Well, you know, <laughs> funny you should say that. Um, I've had, I had somebody, I was doing the, I did the David Jones, you know, there's no other store like David Jones. And I remember going in there and we had done the demo and the client had come in, the advertising agent had come in and he was this gorgeous queen, just really beautiful. And we were doing redoing. So often, if you did a, a demo, a recording, oftentimes they would take that demo and they would use that as the final product because they loved it. And you would get another fee and that was fine. But they wanted to redo the vocal. So I was doing it, doing it, doing it, doing it. And he would come in and he'd say things to me like, now just imagine that you're holding up a cashmere jumper to your face and that feeling of the luxuriousness of David Jones and it was like, you're okay. And we went on, and this went on for hours, literally a couple of hours and finally the producers took me aside and said, look, we're going to play the demo, just mime it and he'll love it because he loved the demo. So that's what we did. And he still said, oh, it's not as good as the demo. Like, I, my, we were <laughs> hilarious. And I've had people say to me, can you make it sound more green? Can you make it sound, you know? And so you learn to, you, 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 you learn to sing with expression and give them the sound that they want. And I, that Hershey's ad that I did, um, I had to do... Uh, a link word that was the word because and I had to do it in an American accent and they had tried seven or eight singers before they got to me they just couldn't find the right singer realistically I think what it was was that the American dollar was so high against the Australian dollar that five or six of these ad executives had come out from J Walter Thompson in America and were going off to the opera house and you know touring around Sydney making the making this commercial and they did film at the sydney opera house and they did like they they really spent a lot of money and they're in the studio and and i am known for speaking my mind i am known for telling it straight this is the way it is i don't want to muck around um you know just a television commercial it's not finding a cure for cancer and uh you know i had to do this link word because 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 and i must have said it 50 times and they were just going and i finally and the and the producer had taken me aside and said now don't say anything just do what they want we don't want to you know we're finally at the end of this don't want you to upset them i was like sure no problem i'll just go and do the job and leave 
and I was getting good money for this job. But after about 50 times of saying because in every possible way that I could, I said to them, hey, it's a word. I've surely you've got, I've said it 50 times. And I could see the producer's face. <gasps> oh my God, shut up. I told you to shut up. And they, and the jingle producers, or the jingle ad execs all looked at each other and went, oh yeah, Shani, you're right. I was like, thank you. Let's sign the check. See ya. <laughs> but you know, I did a lot. Can I talk about a moment then when you quite publicly spoke your mind? And I'm talking about the audition for The Voice. Right. Um, I was so proud of you doing that because you. you were sensational. And uh, I don't think a chair turned around. No. Why did you put yourself in such a... Put yourself on the line like that? Well, I had initially asked to be on the production team. And... I said something about going on The Voice because there was talking about it. My daughter was talking about it. There was a whole lot of people were talking about it. It was the first season. And I might have put something on Facebook jokingly saying, I might go on The Voice. And I was approached by the producer who I knew socially. I was working at the Australian Institute of Music at the time and my boss was her husband at the Australian Institute of Music. He was the, the dean, associate dean. And I had been there for five years teaching. And when The Voice came along, I thought... Because this was the very first series too, yes. wasn't it? Yeah. And I thought to myself, she invited me into the office at Shine and made me cups of tea in China and we're sitting out you know china cups and we're sitting out looking over the water and you know we really want you shauna you're the type of person that we want we want you you know and i said to her look i've done television before and i know as a as a judge I've yeah, done you pop were an stars. A, a adjudicator on pop I've, stars I've, yeah. i know how it works yeah. i know how it works behind the scenes it's and I not said, reality tv it's, it's manipulated it's manipulative an inch tv of its life. right yeah, yeah. and i said i don't my to protect my reputation as a singing teacher and as an artist I don't want to go on that show and get rejected and she said to me I can guarantee you that that won't happen once you're on the show I I can't once you know you're on the show I can't guarantee you anything so I took that to mean that you wouldn't be humiliated that I wouldn't be humiliated somebody would turn around and move forward. And the reason that I agreed to do it was not that I had any kind of unreal expectations that I would win. I just wanted to take my career to another level. I wanted to put myself out there again and say, hey, here I am, I'm still doing it. Some more gigs, please. Which is what everybody I knew that was doing it that year was doing it for none of us expected that we would go on to win well sadly that seems to be the way for a lot of artists to get recording contracts etc yeah. or be discovered through that yeah. public exposure yeah look i didn't TV want to show. get a i didn't want to get a recording contract and i didn't i made a big mistake by not negotiating that if i didn't get on that they wouldn't show it right and i know somebody who did negotiate that, yeah. but I only just found that out recently. Right. Okay. I didn't know that that was a possibility. So in hindsight, you know, that's what I would have done. Um, so my daughter also decided that she would go on and we, there was a whole group of us that, that uh, whole group of friends who were on and we actually met before the show and uh, got uh somebody involved to look at the contract because the contract was ridiculous and um you know there's no way you're going to let you know just by chance if you did happen to win there's no way you're going to let somebody hold that power over you as when you're an experienced singer you're not going to let that happen so anyway so went on and during the day of taping my daughter and I, they kept taping us together. And she, the producer had said to me, we're not going to do any backstories. We're not going to do this and we're not going to do that. Which, of course, is exactly what they did. And during the day, as you're doing, you're 
pretend I'm walking into the building, pretend I'm walking through an elevator, pretend I'm pretend. Um, I'm thinking, this doesn't feel right. This feels like I'm being set up here. So when it came time to go on, um, they put my daughter on before me and no one turned around for her. And I was devastated for her. Yeah, of course. Because she had been, when she was much younger, she had been on Australian Idol and they had really humiliated her and it really affected her. And so I was concerned and upset. Mind you, she wasn't, but I was, the mother in me kicked in and, you know, my protective mama bear. And I, and they were like, and I was, look, and they'd, they'd filmed me looking at her through some peephole, you know. And when no one turned around, I was just like, and then they're like, right, can you go on now? Okay, ready, Shauna, let's go. And I'm like, no, I'm not, no, I'm not going on. And my gut instinct at that time was to walk away. And I was like, no, you're just being over, you know, you're overthinking it. I talked myself into not listening to my gut instinct. And I went on. And to be perfectly honest, I don't think the first four or six, eight bars were very good uh, because I was emotional. Yeah, I had a lump in my throat. I was... And then when no one turned around, I knew that it was a setup. I just knew it was a setup. I just confirmed everything and I was like... I'm not, then they all turned their chairs around and the first words out of my mouth were, are you mental? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and my friend had a T-shirt printed. Are you mental? And then they were just so patronising and rude to me that I was just... And I was so angry at them about not turning for Rebecca that I was just... You know, I had my hands on my hips, literally. I think I was just like... had, You know, both barrels. I I was not happy and I did not want to be there and I was humiliated and... I knew that I had given them exactly what they wanted yeah. and I was furious at myself and I was furious that I had that they had done that to my daughter. It wasn't so much about me but I was furious at myself that I'd allowed myself to, to that I'd put myself in that position and then when you leave the studio so then they go blah 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 whatever yada 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 have a chat and you leave and all day they're around you and they're touching you and then food and making sure you're happy. And then when you don't get on, it's tumbleweeds. You, we, we couldn't even find our shoes. Right. Like we, it was a horrible experience. And they called us into um, one of the line producers came out and she said, oh, can you just come into this room? We just want to talk to you about maybe we could just film you. Um, we'd like to come out to your house and film you getting the letter saying that you got into the voice. I said, there's no more filming. And then someone comes in and says, one of the other producers, not the one that I knew, of course, her associate, would you like to see the psychiatrist? I said, no, you go and see the psychiatrist. How dare you do this to me? Good on you. How dare you? And so the next night, or then it went to air. Three weeks before it went to air, I got called into the office at my workplace at the Australian Institute of Music by my boss, the voice producer's husband, with these false claims of, of um, that are, of complaints that there'd been complaints made against me, and they just didn't want to have somebody on the faculty who was on the Voice who didn't get in. Yeah, right. And it it then turned into me having to take them to Fair Work Australia. I lost my job. It was just a nightmare. That whole thing was a nightmare for me, and I ended up having a nervous freaking breakdown. And it was horrible. It was a horrible experience. I lost work. I couldn't get a job. I was. I had no work. I. Ugh. It was just a horrible experience. Um, I'm sorry. I, I didn't realise it yeah, went to that extent. Yeah, I just saw was, you sticking up for yourself. Uh, and I was look, so I did stick up for myself. You. Well, thank you. But you know, you. It was. It was. Had far-reaching claws of yes. into my life. But you know. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That's right. And a salutary tale to to any young performer looking at those shows and thinking, hey, maybe that's the way. Yeah. And I guess for some people it is, but for other people it can be, you know. 
Look, you know, for somebody like for somebody like it was really good for Prinny Stevens. It was really good for Mahalia Barnes. It was really good for Guy Sebastian. For, you know, yeah. it, it was good for those people. Well, the first the first lot of contestants mm. who went on The Voice, mm. you know, who who that I was on there with, it was good for them. Yeah. You know, because they 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 ticked boxes that the networks liked and that people liked, and it was great for Mahalia because it just took her out of the shadow of her father yeah. which she needed desperately yeah. to do you know and so what well, I think she did yeah. um, you know having known her since she was a baby you know working with Jimmy for such a long time as I did you've done backup backup vocals for a, a number of great artists Jimmy yes. Barnes and, yes. and Doug Parkinson you mentioned and um, yeah. Powderfinger yep Billy Thorpe yep uh, Hugh Jackman yes I had a great great day in the studio with Hugh Jackman. He's so lovely. So that was recording an album for him? It or? was recording an album with uh, before he went to the States to do The Boy From Oz right. and the musical. And they wanted him... They wanted to introduce Peter Allen's music to America because America didn't know anything. They knew Rio and that was it. Did you know Peter Allen? No. 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 And uh, so they wanted to introduce uh, Hugh Jackman to and he honestly he couldn't sing to save himself then he was only just beginning to explore his ability as a singer and and uh so what they wanted to what they were doing with this album was they were doing duets and they were going to I was doing all the female vocals and they were going to take them and give them to superstars in America to sing with you and I got to work with this incredible producer. And as I'm talking, I can't think of his name. Um, he's passed away now. But he had worked, produced with Frank Sinatra and like all these huge names. And I was just so humbled and honoured to to be there. And I re- remember going into the studio and they said, well, can you just sing something? And I sang and he goes, oh, yeah, you got the gig. And I was like, oh, my God, it's so good. And we had a lot of fun and it was and it was really great and he was lovely and, <clears throat> excuse me, and went on to greater heights, as you know, and yeah. he sings really well now. Yeah, absolutely. But he didn't in those days, I tell you. <laughs> um, vocalists, who do, who do you put on a pedestal? Who are your favourite vocalists and, and singers that you admire, that you've... I loved Aretha, Aretha Franklin. I loved uh, the, you know, Whitney Houston, the big singers. The big belts, big... uh... Yeah, just the soul singers. I love, they're my favourites. I love, um, oh gosh, I don't really put anybody on a pedestal. Because I don't, th- I think that we're all in a, on an even playing field in this life. Yeah. We're be- beneath no one and above no one. But there are some people that can certainly sing. You know, Jennifer Hudson. I mean, she's just amazing. I love Dolly Parton. I love. Um, what about classical singers like Maria Callas? Or- oh, I love Maria yeah. Callas. Well, my aunt, my maternal aunt, was a singer, was right. an opera singer, right. and she sang at Covent Garden, and she. Uh, gave up her career when she married her German industrialist husband, but that was kind of where I get my singing gene right. genes from, right. from my maternal Greek side. And you know, I loved Maria Callas, and I grew up my, in when I was growing up at home. We listened to a lot of opera, and um, you know, I I love listening to. Um, uh, you know, I love Joan Sutherland. Yeah. God, Dame Jan Sutherland it was just the, the incredible. voices that can touch the soul, aren't they? so yeah. amazing and just filled with passion and and to be able to sing those roles and those arias and not just the the women but the men as well and Pavarotti and and um, oh, I can't think of any others but you know all of them the great tenors yeah all of them mm. love them all tenors. yes. Uh, you've had a stint as a, a club diva too, a, a disco diva. <laughs> yep. Uh, working with Wayne that. G. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, that took you around the world to yeah. various yeah. Um, audiences yeah. in clubs and things. Yeah. What's that like, being a... Fabulous. Yeah. It's fabulous. To be adorned by, uh, adored by, you know, thousands of gay men at a time. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I... When I kind of discovered a dance music and house music in particular because there's a lot of different genres of 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 dance music and a lot of people go oh yeah it's just doof 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 um but it isn't there's there's types of house music that are 
that have lots of different uh, adjectives before them and and I like what I would call happy vocal house music. So, of course, it has to have hands in the air, has to have a good vocal line and has to have like a song that's uplifting and fantastic. And there's lots and lots of that out there. And um, so so that's my favourite genre. And I said in 1999 that I want to make a a dance music and I want to work with, Paul Goodyear and Steve Carley. I'm going to work with those guys. And I just put it out there. And I was at a party of Jimmy's and Steve Carley's a DJ and he's a friend of Jimmy's. He said, do you want to make a record with me and Paul Goodyear? And I was like, yeah, I just put it out there. That's what I want to do. So anyway, Steve dropped out of the project and it ended up being myself and Paul Goodyear, who now lives and works very successfully in America. And Paul and I spent probably the better part of a year working on what song we wanted to do we wanted to do a cover what were we going to do how we and we we settled on this Sylvester song called Take Me to Heaven and Paul said I um, we released it and Paul said I know this DJ from uh, London called Wayne G do you think we should send it to him I thought sure I don't know whatever so it was the first time I'd ever actually given my music and my vocals to anybody without having a say in how it sounded and I just went I'm just going to go with it mm. and trust the process and it came back and became quite a hit I suppose but just got um, played we called it the song that would not die for a long time and ended up getting picked up for the soundtrack of um, uh, Queer as Folk and the American version of Queer as Folk. And we didn't know what it was, we didn't know where it was going to be used. We thought it'd just be used in a, be used in a club scene. And I was sitting on the couch with my girlfriend the day after Mardi Gras, feeling a little bit hungover, and Queer as Folk was on. It was on the Monday night. So we must have had Mardi Gras on a Sunday party because we were having a recovery on the Monday. And... Um, we were watching Queer as Folk and it got to the very end of this particular episode that was quite a significant episode, uh, storyline. And um, and it got to the end of the episode and this drum beat started and we just looked at each other and went, oh, my God. And it was like at the end of the play out and it was so good. And, you know, if you Google it, there it is, an episode, whatever it is on Queer as Folk. But, of course... You know, we just got paid a fee and they didn't want to negotiate for rights for DVDs and all that. But anyway, it doesn't matter. The music was out there. But because of that song, I then I met Wayne and we became instant besties and we are to this day. And, you know, we made a lot of music together and, you know, he got me gigs and went to San Francisco and L.A. and... Um, I went over to London and did some gigs over there and recording over in London and um, partying a lot and but got to work at Heaven Nightclub and uh, that was fantastic. I went over a couple of times to London to do that and I went to the States a couple of times and did Chicago and San Francisco and LA and a couple of Atlantis cruises, which is a big gay cruise, yeah. you know, circuit party thing. So, yeah. That's good, and I love dance music because dance music to me, and this type of dance music, it's got a big four on the floor beat, which is much like rock music, which yeah. I've spent a lot of my career with rock bands touring. So it's it's that same kind of energy, uh, but just slightly different. Although now it's you know the energy of that scene has changed dramatically. I mean, pre-COVID, it changed dramatically because of the style of drugs that came on the scene and and changed the behaviour of the guys you know to to not so great um and so yeah but i I just want to make more i'm actually making a new track doing a new track at the moment so i'm excited about that Uh, a club anthem yeah yeah club anthem well i hope it's going to be a club anthem (laughs) i hope it'll turn into an anthem that'll be good i hope uh hope there'll be clubs to go to. I know. So it'll be interesting to see how we all come out of this and what behaviours change and social interaction. Yes, indeed. And in America, where COVID is just so rife at the moment, 
uh, as we speak here in Sydney, where we're so fortunate that our government did what they did uh, by closing all the borders as much as we didn't like it. I think it was so smart. And I look at these things that are happening in America and these, these parties and... Everybody's getting there's thousands, hundreds of thousands of people dying, and it's yeah. like stay home. Yes, it's just another night at the disco. Yeah. It's just another night at the disco, and there will be more, hopefully, down the track. So God knows what's going to happen, but you know, people still want to party and dance around in their lounge room, and you know, now we can dance with fifty of our closest buddies in a club. So, you know, I, I just don't know how that's going to work. I just. I don't know. I know today they announced that they're not doing Fair Day this year for Mardi Gras. So, you know, I, I, I find it really baffling that they can have 45,000 people at the football, but you can't have 200 people at a nightclub. Yeah. What's the difference? Mm. I don't get it. But anyway, blah, blah. Vocal care. How do you look after your voice? Um, well, I had three martinis last night. <laughs> <laughs> so alcohol doesn't affect your voice? Because <laughs> uh, co- I know a lot of singers stay away from coffee and they don't smoke. And, uh, look, I, t- I, try to dr- I try and be mindful of drinking a lot of water on the day that I'm doing a show. I, a, lot of, a lot of singers have their own routine. Sometimes I remember to warm up and sometimes I don't. And I think, oh, I should have warmed up, right. And sometimes I'll just do... Sometimes I think it's more of a mental exercise than it is an actual physical exercise. Yeah, yeah. Because your muscles have memory. So to me, it's... Sometimes I think... Like, I I didn't warm up before the gig last night. I had two sips of a martini before that gig. Like, I didn't warm up. Um, but I will warm up tonight because my voice is tired. So, you know, I'll, I'll usually I do a little, you know, a few lip trills and I suck on a few vocal zones and drink lots of water. And you know, your, you I know do. your instrument and what yeah. it needs. Yeah, 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 I do. And sometimes when I sometimes like last night, for instance, there were there were certain notes that I sang and I was like, oh, I, I you know, sometimes I have to remind myself to to breathe in a certain way or I have to remind myself, oh, don't lift your shoulders or whilst I'm in it. But the warming up thing, sometimes I just do a few lip trills for five minutes while I'm fixing my hair and that's enough for me. You know, that I, it's always been quite an easy thing for me to do singing. It's mm. not something that I've struggled to do. However, I wouldn't recommend what I do for everybody else so you have to know your own voice and you have to know what works for you and what doesn't work for you mm. I never warmed up before I went into the studio ever and people say how'd you warm up you know back in the day how'd you I was like, oh, Jack Daniels and Coke and a few cigarettes you know I mean it's <laughs> like I, I never thought about it but I did used to put an Aretha Franklin cassette on in the car and I'd be singing along in the car and that I guess that would be warming up you know because you'd be yeah, you'd be singing and, and I do just do I am conscious of what my, if I'm tired, I will always warm up, even if it's just for 15 minutes. Mm. Just to, you know, I'll do sirening and I'll do, and if, I, if I'm if i sirening across my, my break and it, and, it, and it chops out, I'll know that I have to do a few more lip trills over that and I have to just relax and, and I, I'm always conscious of that. I will always do sirens and then if... My voice isn't working as well as it should, then I'll warm up, basically. Shauna, we've barely touched your extensive <laughs> career, um, 50 years. Uh, again, congratulations. It's been so lovely. Hey, thank you. Catching up with you today and um, hearing some of your incredible experiences. Thank so, you so um, much. Here's to the next 50. Yes, indeed. <laughs> thank you so much. No worries. It's, uh, it's lovely to see you. Thanks to Shauna for that wonderful conversation today and congratulations on 50 years in show business. We're heading towards the final episode for this season, that's series three, and that will be episode 175. Can you believe it? It's a very special Christmas episode and it's going to drop on Christmas Eve. My co-host for the show will see the return of Kate Fitzpatrick. 
and our guests will be Rhonda Birchmore, Brian Castles Onion, Ron Crager, and Geraldine Turner. We'll have some Christmas music and much Christmas cheer to reflect on the year of stages and so much more. Stages will be taking a break over summer, returning in March 2021. Thanks for joining us today. It's always a joy to have your company. I'm Peter Ayers and you've been listening to the Stages podcast. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next week for the final episode of this series. See you later.